If you would, take your Bible and turn again with me to the wonderful letter to the Hebrews and chapter 4 today as we turn the corner on a new chapter. I don't know about you, but I love to listen to good preaching. I love to hear God's truth proclaimed with with honor and reverence and glory and respect that it deserves. And throughout the week, I love to listen to different uh, of my favorite preachers across the country, some still living and some have passed on. But I I love to to study even the way they, they exposit the scriptures. Some of them are so gifted at turning a phrase in, in such a way that it highlights the truth of Scripture in a new way. Maybe they use an illustration that, that helps the text come out before us like a mirror to help us see ourselves and our sin. And yet, sometimes I notice there's a temptation, if I'm not careful, to listen more to how a man preaches than to what he is preaching. That's a deadly danger for us. In fact, it's no less deadly than watching a professional chef prepare you delicious food every single day and yet never eating that food. You can do that for a while, but if you never actually eat the food, you will find yourself starving to death while surrounded by carefully crafted meals. In his most famous sermon, Jesus chose to conclude that sermon by giving us this very warning. He was concerned that his hearers had delighted to hear his words and yet would not put them into practice. And so at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, he closes that famous sermon this way, beginning in verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the winds came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the winds came, the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall." What Jesus highlights here is the truth that anyone can listen to preaching, but mere listening will not save you from destruction. To avoid destruction, we have to take the truth that's been taught and to put it into our lives, into action. By now you know the author of Hebrews is very concerned about this same thing. And over and over again, he picks up the pen to highlight our attention on this fact that you cannot afford to make the deadly mistake of merely listening to the truth and not acting upon that truth. He's going to do that again for us today. You remember the theme of the letter is the superiority of Christ, and we're looking specifically at chapter 3, verse 7, all the way down through chapter 4, verse 13. Today we'll be in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. But let's read beginning in verse 7 of chapter 3 for the sake of context on into our passage which we'll pick up in verse 1 of chapter 4. Hebrews 3 7, therefore just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was angry with this generation. And said, they always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, 
that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. There's one overarching theme here. We've been looking at it now for several weeks. It's simple, direct, and powerful. Be on guard against hard-hearted unbelief towards Christ. This, of course, is the second warning passage to beware of a hardened heart. We've seen four tactics to keep us from a hardened heart in weeks past. Remember the past, verses 7 to 11. Examine your heart, verse 12. Encourage the church in verse 13. And then finally we came to verse 14, cling to faith. And from that call to cling to faith, he, he launches into yet again the Psalm 95 description of the wilderness generation. And he, he held up for us last week the example of the wilderness generation in verses 16 to 19 through three Q&As, three questions and answers. And each of those Q&As, we discovered something about the relationship between God and the wilderness generation under Moses. Q&A number one taught us that God's word was spurned. Secondly, God's anger was roused. And then finally, the consequence, God's rest was removed from them. But all of this led to one final lesson in verse 19. If you weren't here last week, it boils down to this. Here's the point. Unbelief produces disobedience. Unbelief produces disobedience. And he brought us to this point so that he can now turn the tables and focus on you and I. Last week was very much focused on that particular generation and, and God's work with that generation and how they failed to enter into the promised land. And now he's going to take that illustration and point it directly at us and, and sort of call us to wake up and to learn from their poor example. That brings us then to our text, Hebrews 4, verses 1 and 2. Let's read just those verses again. Therefore, let us fear... If while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. He's going to begin in verse 1 with a sober warning. That warning is this. Fear falling short of God's rest. Fear falling short 
of God's rest. He begins in verse 1 there with the word, therefore. This is still flowing right out of verse 19 in chapter 3. Again, this is an application. He's coming at us now to say, therefore, based on all of those truths that I showed you about the wilderness generation, there's something that you have to do. There's a certain response that we should have as we think about their failure to enter the promised land. As we look at ourselves, he says, here's the response that you should have. Therefore, let us fear. Let us fear. Now, this is a strong admonition. Perhaps it takes us off guard. Because when we think about the New Testament, most often we think about being called to to peace and to hope and, and to comfort and joy. And yet here, the author says the appropriate response to what we just learned in the wilderness generation is fear. Fear. It's a fear in the sense of of a sober assessment where, where the gravity and the weight of what happened to that generation comes crashing down upon us. It's it's meant to grab you by the collar this morning and wake you up from spiritual complacency. He says, when you look at what happened to that generation, if you're thinking the appropriate response for you this morning will be to fear. The stakes can't be higher than they are when it comes to us understanding the deadly danger of unbelief. The wilderness generation is dead and gone. The story is written. It's contained here for us in the book of Numbers. Yet for those of us who are alive, hope remains to yet enter the promised rest of God. And so as you consider this generation and their failure, you should not sit back in your chair at ease and comfort and rest. But you should fear. The truth is we don't like the heaviness that comes with deep application of truth. We don't like to talk about things like sin and death and eternal judgment and hell. But if you're wise, the author says, you will push past that, that human instinct to avoid such things and you will take stock and you will fear. But why exactly is fear the correct response to the instruction that we've heard about the wilderness generation. We'll look back at the text. Here's why. Therefore, let us fear, if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. There's the reason for fear. We're told here that we actually, in a a spiritual sense, find ourselves in a very similar situation as the wilderness generation. And we are now responsible, and we are now held accountable by God for how we respond to the truth that God has given to us. Last week, we were introduced to this concept of God's rest, and I told you then that there are are two different ways that the author uses this concept of rest in our passage. First of all, last week, he, he talked about the physical entrance into the promised land for the wilderness generation, and he referred to that as entering into God's rest. That was a, a physical promise to that people at that time, and they failed to enter into the promised land, and it was their children who ultimately would fulfill that promise. But that's not what he means here when he talks about God's rest. Now, he's turned the corner to a spiritual application. And the idea and the concept of entering into God's rest for you and me this morning is the 
spiritual entrance through salvation in Jesus Christ into eternal life, the eternal rest of God. And we know that because he says, if while a promise remains of entering his rest, that is, it's still available to us. It's still active. It remains until today. So obviously he can't be talking about that physical entrance that already took place under the leadership of Joshua. Instead, he invites us into this this calling that still is active for us to enter into the spiritual rest of God, the eternal rest of God. But he wants us to grapple with this illustration. Just as the the physical people of Israel stood with their, their physical toes on the boundary, the entry point, into the promised land, so we stand with our spiritual toes looking into at the boundary of eternal life and eternal rest in God. There's something else, though, that we can't afford to miss. Every word in Scripture matters. And notice the word while. While. And think about the implications of the word while. He says, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering. What's the implication there? The implication is the fact that there's an expiration date on this promise. It does remain open to you and I today. The door stands wide open through Jesus Christ to enter into God's eternal rest, but it won't always be so. There will come a day in which Christ either physically returns or he brings us to the point of our physical death, and at that point, the offer will expire. That's why the author adds the word, while. While a promise remains of entering his rest. But the fact that the offer of God's rest stands open before us is not the reason to fear. The fact that God's rest stands before us is a reason for joy. So what is the real reason for fear here? What's the second half of that phrase? The promise remains open of entering his rest, but he says, Fear if any one of you may seem to have come short of it. There's the reason for fear. The opportunity of salvation lays before us through Jesus Christ. But we ought to be very fearful at the thought of coming up short of entering into that eternal life. This is language that's very familiar to us from places like Romans 3.23 where it says we've all fallen short of the glory of God. He's saying make sure you don't ultimately fall short of entering into the very presence of God and the eternal rest of God through the person of Jesus Christ. We should all tremble at the thought of following in the footsteps of the wilderness generation. After all they had seen, after all they had heard, there they stand, ready to enter the promised land, and they come up short. The author says when you consider their example and when you place yourself there spiritually on the banks of entering into the rest of God through Jesus Christ, be very fearful at the thought of coming up short of that rest. But that's not all. That's not all that's here because notice who these words are addressed to. First of all, notice there at the very beginning of verse 1, therefore let us fear. Let us fear. Fear, that's a first-person plural, meaning all of us, every single one of us. And you might say, well, wait a minute, I don't don't fully understand what he's getting at here because 
while I, I do find the theoretical concept of not entering into salvation scary, I'm not actually afraid of that because I'm, I'm assured of my faith. I know that I've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, and that, that's right. We, ought, we can have assurance and confidence that we've come to know the Lord, and yet here it says, let us fear. So what is he getting at? Well, he knows he's talking to believers, at least, at least professing believers in this church, and yet he says, for you, let all of us, he includes himself in the instruction and says, let us fear. And I think the answer to that question comes in the very specific wording he chooses because he says, let us all fear if any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Now, the application here is twofold. We should all have an internal sense in which there is the, the fear of the thought of not entering into God's eternal rest through salvation. Not only that, there's also a corporate sense because he says, let us all fear if any one in our midst doesn't enter into that spiritual rest. What he's saying is the second reason to, to fear, to tremble, is the thought that we won't all go. The people sitting around you in this room, let us fear. Let us tremble at the thought that we leave anyone standing on the banks, looking over into the promised land as we enter. And so even if you are secure, I pray you're secure in your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you have confidence by the, the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God that you will enter into that promised rest. Then fear and tremble for those who sit on your right and left, that they too would enter with you. There's an individual urgency but there's a corporate urgency. That means that we should not only be busy preaching the truth to ourselves when our hearts are tempted towards weak faith, but we should be committed to loving one another in the body to the point that we have deep enough relationships that we're willing to be honest to, with them and to call them back with the truth to true, strong faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, this is exactly what Joshua and Caleb tried to do. You can understand that when, when the 12 spies went in to see the land and they come back and 10 of those spies give a wicked report and they say, ah, we can't do it, the land's good, but we're not strong enough, we're not going to be able to go in, it's a bad idea. And they ultimately lead the people astray. Joshua and Caleb stand up and they call out to the people trying to strengthen their faith. Listen to Numbers chapter 14, verses 5 and 9. This is after the people respond wickedly. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephna, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. You see the urgency with which Joshua and Caleb, they, they try with their, all their might to call the congregation back to faith in God. That's what we're to do. We're to have the same urgency, not only for our own souls, but for every professed believer in this room, for everyone who's connected to this church and, of course, beyond. 
And this call to fear is not, not a call to shrink back in fear, but to stand up and to move forward, to speak truth to ourselves and to speak truth to one another so that we will all enter safely into the rest of God through salvation in Christ. But what does that look like? What does that look like for us as a congregation to truly fear the thought that any one of us may not enter? Well, when it comes to encouraging ourselves in the faith, it means that we're committed to testing our thoughts. It means that we, we test our emotions and our thoughts against the objective word of God. We have to constantly be on guard with our minds. We talk about this a lot. We have to be on guard as our minds are, are tempted to drift and our emotions tempt us to, to, to distrust God, to call ourselves back with truth. We have to ask ourselves questions. Ask yourself when you're, when you're stirred up and your emotions are, are tempted to be anxious and, and worried, ask yourself, what are my thoughts and my emotions saying about my theology right now? Are my thoughts and emotions in alignment with the truths that I claim to believe that God is sovereign, that God is good, that he is faithful, that he has promised to carry out his plan of redemption and no one will stand in the way of it, that he's promised to work all things for the spiritual good of those who love him, that, that my strength has made power in my weakness, that he will never leave me or forsake me, that his grace is sufficient for me. Am I living that way? Am I thinking that way? And where we find deficiencies, we repent of those and bring our minds back into alignment with the truth. But how does that play out in, in encouraging others when their faith is tempted to be weak? Well, we do the exact same thing for them that we're called to do for ourselves. We come alongside with, with love and patience and compassion. And when we listen, but then we also speak. We speak truth. We, we say, brother, I understand. I, I've been in a similar situation. That's so difficult. But God is with us. God is good. He's not left you. The gospel's still true. God will see you through. Hold on to him in faith. We speak truth to each other. This is 1 Thessalonians 5.14. It says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. So we don't pounce on one another and harshly correct every subtle nuance of what others say, but we do commit ourselves to going out of our way to be intentional, to come alongside, and to gently encourage brothers and sisters in difficult circumstances in which they're tempted towards weak faith to trust, to believe, to hold on. It means we ask follow-up questions on Sunday morning when we pass by and say, good morning, how are you, brother? And they say, um good. We don't just pass on and say, good to see you. I'm going for the dark roast. We say, well, tell me about that. Why the pause? We push into that. It means we notice when someone from our small group has missed church three weeks in a row and we don't know why. And we call. It means we keep close tabs on those in the church who we know that God has placed in very difficult circumstances and the, the trials of life are really beating against them. We come alongside. We pray behind the scenes. We send cards. We, we drop by. We, we make calls so that they understand you're not bearing this weight alone. We love you. Christ loves you. Stay the course. He will see you through. That's what it looks like when a congregation takes seriously this command. Let us fear if any one of us should come up short. It means that we tremble at the thought of coming to the edge of God's promised eternal salvation and not entering either as an individual or as a corporate body. 
Let me be clear that we don't have the power to save one another. We don't have the power to sanctify one another. But we are called to love one another and to speak truth to one another. And God works through his truth by the power of his spirit to strengthen the body, to save through the preaching of the gospel, and to edify and build up believers through the preaching of the truth. And so it is that we show up when a brother pulls away. And we pray continually in the background when our attempts are spurned. And we ask hard questions instead of keeping things casual. And we even practice church discipline in some cases when needed because we're terrified at the thought that anyone will be left standing on the banks, staring into eternity, having come up short. May we be a church at North Lake Bible Church that truly trembles at the thought that any would perish in our midst. But maybe you're here this morning and this has begun to stir up within you some legitimate concern for your own soul. And you're wondering, am am I even one of those who's going to enter into that blessed rest? Well, let me just put you at ease that you don't have to wonder because in the very next verse, the author gives us the solution to this problem. A clear solution, and it's this. Respond to the gospel with faith. Respond to the gospel with faith in verse 2. Verse 2 begins, for indeed. Here the, the author is going to more explicitly explain how our current situation is very similar to that in the wilderness generation. And this similarity is the real reason that we ought to be very careful and we ought to fear at the thought of not entering God's eternal rest. And here is the, the main connection point between us and this wilderness generation in verse 2. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us. We've had good news preached to us. The word good news here is a verb that is, we get our English word evangelism from. The good news has been preached to us. The, the gospel, the evangel, the good news of God has been preached to us. The the author makes clear here throughout the letter that he's writing to to believers, probably primarily Jewish believers. And so he knows that they have been the beneficiaries, if they're in Christ, of having heard the good news of the gospel preached. And we too, as believers, have been beneficiaries of hearing the good news of, of the gospel proclaimed. In fact, the author of Hebrews goes on earlier in Hebrews chapter 2 to explain, remind them how they came to hear of the gospel. Hebrews 2 verses 3 and 4. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was at the first spoken through the Lord, that's Jesus, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. These believers here in context had not only heard the gospel, they had apparently received the gospel through the mouths of God's chosen witnesses, the apostles. And he says, God himself came alongside that witness of the apostles and testified to it through miraculous gifts. So it was spoken at first by Christ, who gave it to his apostles, who spoke the truth, and God the Father testified to to them as witnesses and to the message through divine miracles. So certainly they had had the the great gift, the precious gift, of having the gospel preached to them. But now think back to last week and you'll begin to see the connection very clearly. 
the wilderness generation, had also heard the word of God through the mouth of Moses, and God had also testified to the truthfulness of that message through divine miracles. That's why he goes on to add here in Hebrews, for indeed we have had good news preached to us just as they also, just like they did. Now understand, the author is not insinuating that that the wilderness generation had all the full details of the gospel preached to them in the way that we have post-Christ's death and resurrection, but certainly they had the, the plan of redemption as, as far as what God had revealed at that time. Remember, the, the gospel goes all the way back to the garden in Genesis 3.15, this promise of one who would come from the seed of the woman and crush the head of the serpent. That carries on then successively as, as God continues to progressively reveal his, his revelation. But they certainly have that, that plan of redemption, at least in that basic form, as well as obviously the clear revelation of God through Moses. Not to mention in context, they specifically had the promise of God to bring them out of Egypt and into the promised land. They had heard the good news and God had testified to it. And these believers in the same way were blessed and we are blessed because we have the testified word of God, the verified word of God here in the scriptures. We, like them, have had the good news preached to us. It brings up the question, though, what is that good news? When the Bible talks about the gospel, the good news, the Bible is always speaking about this this beautiful message brought to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. In Mark 1, verses 14 to 15, it says, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, the good news of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus Christ came preaching this good news of repentance from sin and salvation that would come through his own blood spilled for guilty sinners. The good news of the gospel is that though we are sinners who deserve the wrath of God because of our rebellion against him, God in his kindness and grace has sent his perfect son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life and offer that life as a sacrifice on the cross to pay for the sins of those who would come in repentance and faith through him, who would believe in him, that he truly was the Lord, the son of God, God in human flesh, and that only by his sacrifice can someone come to be saved from the wrath of God. God raised him from the dead on the third day, proving that eternal life was secured, that the the penalty had been fully paid. And if you're here this morning, and perhaps this is the first time that you're hearing the message of the good news of the gospel, then friend, understand that the promise of entering into the rest of God still stands for you today if you'll simply turn from your sins in true repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, confessing your sin and your desire to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved and you will have assurance and confidence that you will enter this blessed rest. That is the good news. That is the good news that had been preached to these Christians. It's the good news that's preached from this pulpit week in and week out. And if this is your first time here, then you too now are in this group who has had the blessing of having good news preached to you. But notice that the mention of the fact that these believers have heard the good news is still in connection with the fact that the author says we should fear. The reason for that 
is because the wilderness generation also had good news preached to them, and yet they ultimately didn't enter the promised land, but found themselves banned. Now that realization should cause us to fear because it highlights the sober reality that salvation doesn't automatically come to us just because we have the privilege of hearing the good news. The author's very concerned that we understand what went wrong in the case of the wilderness generation. And he describes what went wrong in this way. He says, we've had good news preached to us just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them. It didn't benefit them. It didn't do them any good. Clearly, they heard the good news. They got the right message. It wasn't the message, and it certainly wasn't the the messenger. God had testified to the messenger. And yet, though it was the right message with God's approved messenger, it didn't profit them. That should cause us to fear, the author says. That should cause us to tremble. That's the essence of the fear that's commanded Here, they heard the blessed truth of God, the gracious promise of God, and yet it ended up not profiting them. Of course, that brings the lingering question again, why not? Why didn't it profit them? He explains it again in clear language. Because it was not united by faith in those who heard. It was not united by faith. Here again, we find ourselves exactly where we left off last week. This was the the culmination of verse 19 at the end of the message last week, where the author explained to us there, they were not able to enter because of unbelief. While we know it wasn't the message, and it wasn't the messenger, the, the good news of the gospel is the fact that it is powerful to save. That's why Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel. But thinking that you can just listen to gospel preaching and therefore be saved because you've heard is as nonsensical as thinking that you can fulfill your need for food by simply sitting under the shade of an apple tree. And yet many Christians, professing Christians, continue to pacify their consciences because they sit week in and week out under the shade of gospel preaching. But they never actually stand up Take the fruit and eat it. And this verse cries out to us to understand that generation heard good news, but they didn't enter because it didn't profit them because they didn't unite it with faith. Let us fear if any of us should do the same. He's talking to us about the difference in hearing and saving faith. And we can learn a lot about saving faith, true faith, just by looking at the wilderness generation and doing the opposite of what they did. What do we learn? I hope you took the assignment last week and you thought through Numbers uh, 14 and following and and, and took some, some notes as to how God interacted with that generation and what we can learn. But I'm convinced that we can learn a lot about the nature of true saving faith by just looking again at this generation. And so if faith is the big issue, if that's what's going to keep us from entering into God's rest, I think it's important that we spend some time understanding what faith is. So let's look at four important truths about saving faith that we learn from the example of the wilderness generation. Number one, 
Saving faith is more than intellectual belief in God and the Bible. It's more than intellectual belief in God and the Bible. We know this is true because, because God tells us definitive, definitively that uh, the way that the wilderness generation responded was not a demonstration of faith. That's why he didn't let them in. And yet, I guarantee you that if we could go back and talk to one of those individuals that was part of that generation and say, Hey, did God lead you out of Egypt? Absolutely. It was amazing. You should have been there. Did, did you taste the manna? Absolutely. Every morning. It was delicious. D did he part the Red Sea? Absolutely. You, you should have seen it. The water standing up on, on each side and the ground. It was, it was dry. I didn't even get dirt on my feet. And then we got to the other side and, and the Egyptians came in and it came crashing down and, and it killed them all. It was, it was unbelievable. You have never seen anything like it. They would, have, they would have said, absolutely, with emotional animation and confidence, God brought us out of Egypt, and God did all these wonderful things, and yet when they get to the promised land, they don't enter because they don't have true faith. So clearly then, just affirming what the Bible says, and even having intellectual belief in God, and even the Bible as the Word of God, is not in and of itself saving faith must be more to it. In the same way, a person who says they affirm that Jesus was a real historical figure, they may even affirm that he died on the cross, just believing those facts intellectually is not enough. That's not true saving faith. Well, let's keep moving forward. Number two, saving faith includes trust in the gospel and love for God himself. That's important. Saving faith includes trust in the gospel, in the good news, and love for God himself. The person who's come to genuine saving faith and placed their full trust and confidence in the gospel as their only hope of salvation is a person also who, who has come to that gospel out of a love and affection for God himself. They've come through hearing the gospel message to understand who God is. And it has stirred up a desire for God through the gospel message. They have put their, their, their full trust in this gospel. All their eggs are in this spiritual basket. They're not just still trying to decide and one toe in and one toe out. True saving faith is diving into that gospel as our only hope and abandoning all other hopes. In addition to that, they, they have freely come to genuinely love God. It comes with a, an affection for the person of Jesus Christ. You remember that when, when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt and he makes a covenant with them, he doesn't just call them to come into a covenant in which they're going to abide by certain rules. But he offers to them himself. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. That was the highlight of that. He's calling them to himself. In the gospel, God's doing the same thing. To be his people and for him to be our God, redemption has to happen. Blood has to be shed. The, the son has come to do that, to bring many sons to glory, the scripture says. To unite us to God. And so a proper response to the gospel includes coming not simply to believe facts, but to trust them fully and to love God himself. Think of it this way. For the Christian... When we think about the potential of what it would be like to be in hell, 
It is not the flames that scare us. It's the separation from Jesus Christ. The most horrifying thing about hell for a believer is the absence of real, living, eternal relationship with Christ. It's not all the other stuff. Don't get me wrong, the the torment of hell the Bible describes will be horrific. It will be horrendous. But the thought for the believer is, I want to be with my Savior. I don't even care about the golden streets. I don't need a mansion. I'll be a hall boy. I'll shine shoes. But please, let me be with my Savior. That's saving faith. A person has come to value the Lord Jesus Christ in hearing the gospel. And therefore, they respond out of joy, not out of fear just to escape hell, but out of the joy of knowing I can be with God because Jesus Christ has secured that through his own sacrificial death and resurrection. Thirdly, saving faith includes repentance from sin. True saving faith understands the devastation that sin has brought. We understand that the good news of the gospel was necessary because of our sin. And because we've come to love him, we have necessarily then come to hate sin. Understand, believers don't become perfect at the moment of salvation. That's not what I'm saying. But there does grow within them an immediate repulsion for their old life, for who they used to be, for the things of of darkness. They want to be with the Savior and they want to do the things the Savior loves. Saving faith includes repentance from sin. Finally, saving faith will evidence itself in our response to trials and temptation. When we come to genuinely trust God by responding to the gospel message in faith, because we're coming to a person, the person of Jesus Christ, the believer begins to grow to trust Him in all things. After all, if we can trust Him with our souls, that our souls will be ushered into glory upon our death or, or His return, then we, certainly we can trust Him with much lesser things. And so what happens when a person comes to true saving faith and they, they turn to God and they begin to sit under good preaching and read His Word and, and begin to become a deepening, growing disciple, they begin to trust God more and more and more for the daily things of life. And that begins to show up, begins to bear fruit. So that when God brings trials and tests into life, to our lives, we respond with faith instead of questioning and anger. Not that Christians can't ever be tempted towards those things. But the issue with the wilderness generation is that every time their faith was tested, it was proven to be false. The idea then is that for a true believer who has saving faith, though our faith will be tested, and we might find at times there are areas where our faith is still too weak, Ultimately, the believer over time will evidence a continued faith in God because they know who he is. There's a song by Shane and Shane that I've been listening to this week with my family. And there's one line that keeps ringing in my ears because it fits so well with what I'm studying here in Hebrews. And it's a song about trials and how to think about trials rightly. And it says this one line, I don't know what you're doing but I know what you've done. I don't know what you're doing, but I know what you've done. That was the failure of the wilderness generation. They were never impacted by what God did. 
every time in the present tense something new happened, they didn't bring into that situation the character of God that they had learned in the past so that they could have faith in the present. But the believer says, man, that, the way looks dark. The way looks hard. And it looks scary. But I know my God. And I know he's with me. And so I will walk in faith through this darkness because I know him. And therefore I can trust him for today and I can trust him for tomorrow because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's the essence of faith. The author of Hebrews calls us then to fear and tremble at the thought of coming so close to the entry point only to find our faith was counterfeit. And so we really come down to two clear applications this morning. The first one is this. Evaluate the condition of your faith. Evaluate the condition of your faith. Have you come to genuine saving faith in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or have you believed the lie that because you intellectually believe these things, that that is the same as trusting in Christ and loving Christ? Have you professed faith and then gone on to begin to battle sin? Has there been a change in your life in regards to sin? Not in perfection, but have you jumped into the battle with the sword of God's word so that you're cutting it down and growing in the faith? Has your professed faith in God produce faith in other areas of your life? Do you find that as he grows you more and more, as new trials and new temptations come, you're more quickly meeting those with faith because you know your God or has nothing changed in regard to that? If after evaluating your faith this morning, you come to the realization that you know for a fact you've never come to genuine saving faith, then friend, the, the goal of this message is not to leave you despairing. But it is to bring you back to this reminder that we have here that the promise of his rest remains open for those who would repent and believe. If you're living and breathing this morning, the promise remains open to you. And so if you find your faith is lacking or counterfeit, the response is not to despair, but to throw yourself on the mercy of God through Jesus Christ in faith and repentance, and you will find him eager and ready to save. But secondly, we must encourage one another in the faith. Encourage one another in the faith. If you're confident this morning that by God's grace in Christ, you are a true believer and you know that you're going to go walking into that promised rest because of his shed blood for you, then let me ask you, honestly, do you tremble at the thought that someone in our midst this morning may not enter with you? Is there someone in the church that you know has been struggling under the weight of some difficulty or trial and, and, and there, are, there are signs of, of their faith weakening? Have you gone to them? Have you come around them? Have you prayed for them? Have you, have you sought to encourage them in the truth? Is there someone that you know in the church that just quietly has begun to drift. Sometimes that happens. Our, our church is already getting larger, and it's, it's kind of easy at times for people just to conveniently drift away without saying a word. That's why we have things like small groups to, to sort of break up the church into smaller groups so that there are people being shepherded 
And so we're depending on you. If you know of someone that's begun to, to drift in their faith, go after them. Call them. Pray for them. Write them a card. Send them a note. Call them back. But we have to be serious as a body of believers to hit our knees in prayer for one another, to speak truth to one another. Because it's my desire, and I pray your desire, that as much as it depends on us, that one day when we open our eyes in that kingdom and we prepare to raise our voices in heavenly worship, that we'll look around and we'll see some familiar faces. And as Northlake Bible Church, mixed with all the saints and angels of heaven, we will add our voices to that chorus. I want to look around and see your faces there. And I pray you feel the same. While salvation is not in our power to give, we can love each other enough to share the truth. Let's love each other well until the day that we raise our voices in the very presence of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, that is our prayer, that is our hope, as we anticipate the day in which we cross into that spiritual rest, safe and secure, eternal rest from sin, eternal rest from the daily battle that wages war, eternal rest in which we see you as you are. Behold your glorious face. We long for that day and we pray that you would strengthen our faith because we confess so many times our faith is still weak. God, give us a love for Christ and give us a love for Christ's people in which we intentionally go out of our way to love each other enough to encourage and to speak truth, to, to bring the truth to bear in the lives of others and in our own lives that we would all enter together into that eternal rest. We thank you for this good news that's secured by Christ. Grateful for your love that's so undeserved. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.